your promise. Salvation is far, is from the is from the wicked. <laughs> so's my eye. Uh, for they do not see our decrees. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. I see how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Amen. Okay, let me get this so it doesn't ring again. Uh, oh boy, let's take one second. Okay, good. Um, there we go. All right, let's see here. We get uh, one February today. Boy, January went by fast. Yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> let's see here. In the fifth century, according to Irish church tradition, a king impregnated a slave, and the baby, Brigid, was raised a servant who grew up grinding corn, washing feet, tending livestock, and giving the king's bacon to hungry dogs and his butter to working boys. Losing patience, he took her to a nearby kingdom, intending to sell her. Finding an interested buyer, he left Brigid in the chariot while he went inside to finalize the arrangements. When a leper passed by, Brigid gave him her father's battle sword from the chariot. The king was enraged, and the prospective husband backed out, saying that he could not afford such a wife. Brigid was beautiful and full of spunk, and since she loved music and conversation, her father ultimately arranged her marriage to a poet. But resolving to belong only to Christ, Brigid found the man another wife, then deserted her father's castle. Her father thought it good riddance, Brigid sought other women wanting to belong only to Christ, and with seven of them, she organized a community of nuns, like the community of monks established by Patrick. The monastic settlement at Kildare became a buzzing compound peppered with the thatched roofs, buildings within a great stone wall. Artist studios, workshops, guest chambers, a library, and a church evolved. This and similar settlements became beehives of industry, producing some of the most beautiful craftsmanship in Europe. The slaves and the poor bettered their lot by becoming artisans. Brigid herself traveled by chariot as an evangelist throughout the countryside, helping the poor, preaching the gospel, and organizing nunneries. By her death on February 1st, 453, at least 13,000 women had escaped from slavery and poverty to Christian service and industry. Throughout ensuing centuries, Christians across Ireland have placed St. Brigid's crosses of woven straw over their doors on February 1st, and housekeepers have repeated a rhyme bidding them give a portion of their butter to working boys. Uh, Deuteronomy 24:19. if you forget to bring in a stack of harvested grain, don't go back in the field to get it. Leave it for the poor, including foreigners, orphans, and widows, and the Lord will make you successful in everything you do. Yeah, there was uh, about 18 theological points that I would argue against in that commentary, but whatever. Um, yeah, it is what it is. Um, uh, yeah, well, maybe more. I wasn't counting as I was going through, so they were multiplying rather quickly. But anyway, very happy she had a good life and didn't end up feeding pigs or bacon all her life. Um, let's see here. Uh, we are in 1 Timothy. 
and we are up in chapter one, and we finally got to verse nine. We did. So you start wherever you want, yeah, and then we'll go for it. Let's start at the... Oh, wait a minute. we got to pray. That's a good idea. Heavenly Father, oh, how good it is to be in your presence. We thank you for the gift of your word, which tells us of Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for Jesus and the work that he accomplished on our behalf and the glory of the cross. Thank you that he didn't stay in the grave, but resurrected, paving a way for us to have eternal life in your presence. Lord, we're so grateful to you for that. We pray that uh, your word will be handled properly and with care. And uh, if there's anything that is amiss in what we say, please bring it up to us so that we would not have uh, something incorrect presented to the people that hear. And Lord, we're very grateful to you for all good things in Christ. Thank you for this wonderful weather. And just, we love you, we praise you, and we honor you. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about that weather thing. Oh, it was great today. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, though, I was out... Uh, uh, mowing the lawn at the mall barefoot and I had like four people stop and they were like they just thought I was insane I'm like hi well, anyway, whatever it's the, the lawn is mowed I have all my toes one Chris she messaged me and she was upset because um, uh, I wasn't wearing shoes mm -hmm. wow. and I said you know the chances of you getting your foot hit by a lawnmower I've been doing it for 55 years now but are much less without shoes on because your, the shoes will raise your foot up to the level of the blade and it'll catch and it'll pull your foot up into there. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you have shoes on or not. I'm going to tell you this right now. Do you know when I was in the military, they mandated that you wear steel-toed shoes. You had to have big steel things on the front of your boots, okay? And they stopped doing that. Do you know why? Because it would crush and then you'd really be in... It would go in and it would bend the metal into the person's foot. Right, right. And so it was actually more damaging to their foot than it ever was if they had just not worn steel-toed shoes. So um, there's so much torque. So. Yeah, no shoes at all. That's much better. But there's so much torque in the lawnmower that it will cut right through that chair. I mean, it just they're very powerful motors. So there you go. Anyway, uh, go ahead. 1 Timothy 1, 9. Yes, okay. Um, I'll just back up one uh, eight. verse to 8, uh, which is the beginning of a paragraph. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Nine, we also know that law is made not for the righteous, unholy, and irre irre irreligious, easy for me to say, for those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers. Okay, this is completely different ordered, ordered and uh, we don't have irreligious or whatever you were struggling with. Irreligious. So. Okay, here we go. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. So he went through a whole list of folks there. Let's see, uh, Paul begins this verse. I see we got some people that have never been here before, so I'll explain. These are my notes from the Charlie Garrett commentary of the New Testament. And uh, so I just read my notes and then we add in whatever else comes to mind. But. Um, Paul begins this verse by referring to everyone in a general sense. At least it should be that way. His words are be, to be taken as a universal axiom. However, not everyone is either intelligent enough to understand what should be otherwise universally accepted. Or some people may be intentionally perverse in their attitude and conduct towards the law. Therefore, it is specifically to the person mentioned in verse 8 
who is more directly the one being referred to. So read verse 8 again. It was, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. There you go. Okay, if you don't use the law properly, then it's obviously not good in that sense. And so this is written to people that are going to do all the things that Paul is now going to explain. Um, if you think about, and Paul speaks about it in detail in Romans. You know, the purpose of the law, the uh, uh, why the law is good, why the law is holy, why the law is just, and how that is, you know, necessary for people to understand the coming of Christ. So, um, with that having been said, and so, knowing this, Paul's words, knowing this, is speaking of one who uses the law lawfully. As Paul is writing to Timothy, it is then intended for Timothy to understand this and be included in what is being said. Okay, Timothy, I'm writing you this epistle, and I want you to know this so that when you teach it, you will be able to properly elucidate what I'm telling you right now. And finally, as this letter is intended for the instruction of all people due to its inclusion in the Bible, it is therefore meant for each and every reader of the Bible to understand. With this in mind, he next says that the law is not made for a righteous person. There's no point in it. If a person is upholding the, uh, I won't take you to Romans 2, but uh, Paul speaks about the person that has the law written on their heart. They're upholding the law even though they don't have the law, okay? And so that person is doing something that a person that does have the law and doesn't obey the law is showing certain things that God has instilled in human beings. Anyway, um, uh, it says uh, the law of Moses precedes the coming of Christ. It is Christ who is holy righteous, and it is those who believe in him that are granted his perfect righteousness. Therefore, Paul is saying clearly and unambiguously that the law of Moses is not made for those in Christ, if you understand that. And, you know, uh, it depends on what church and what uh, background you have as far as law observance. If you're a Seventh-day Adventist, then you believe that that is a mandatory thing that you have to do in order to be saved and keep being saved is to observe the, the Sabbath. And then, of course, you get the Hebrew roots churches that insert you must observe the uh, feasts of the Lord and things like that. And any time that you reinsert the law of Moses, you're doing a disservice to the people that are around you that are observing you, and you are disgracing the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. Because, and that and we talked about this last week or two weeks ago. I mentioned it, and I love to mention it because it's such a sticking point. That includes churches that mandate tithing. Tithing is a precept that is found under the law of Moses. Not only do they not teach properly because they're reinserting a precept from the law, which is annulled in Christ, but they are, I guarantee you, not teaching tithing properly. And so they're double abusing the law of Moses. But um, uh, everybody that's been in this class before uh, don't say anything. Somebody that hasn't been in this class before, what is tithing and what are you supposed to do with it? Uh, well, that's New Testament. That is what we are to do in the New Testament. I'm going to read you this because uh, we've got a lot of people that have not been in the class before. And this is, just hold on now. Hold on. Let me get there. That's my mother, and she's very ambitious to uh, to uh, have us. So she has been listening. Uh, she, uh, oh, she's been listening to this for years. I, I, uh, she, uh, I'm going to take you to the uh, verses of the 
tithing. Okay, there are some that are in uh, the book of Numbers. There's uh, a reference to it in the book of Leviticus. But the main tithing verses that are uh, expanded, expounded upon by Moses are in Deuteronomy. Go ahead, Miss Garrett. What chapter? Deuteronomy 14, verse... That's right, 22. You did very good. Okay, so we're going to start with Deuteronomy 14, and we're going to go to verse 22. So if somebody says that you need to tithe, you say, well, that's a precept from the Old Testament. That's, uh, you know, uh, under the law of Moses, and the law of Moses is... Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Hebrews uh, 7, 18, 8, 13, and 9, 10. It's uh, annulled, it is set aside, it is obsolete. Paul says it is nailed to the cross in Colossians 2, 14. Okay, but uh, just in case they still mandate tithing, which they will find ways of manipulating you on that issue, I, you can be assured, um, you take them to the tithing verses and say, okay, if you want us to be a tithing church, then I will give according to the tithes of the law. And here's what it says. Uh, Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 22, it says, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. A tithe means a tenth. So you shall tenth a portion of your grain year by year. That's very explicit. It says, and you shall, here it is, eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So your tithe, you eat. That is what you do with your tithe. But if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, now that ought to clue you in right there that we are not to be tithing because he's speaking to Israel under the law and he's speaking about going to Jerusalem where the temple is, which is something no person does. So even if they say that you need to tithe, they're not upholding the standard of the tithe, which is you eat your tithe, nor are you going down to Jerusalem. So you're really a law violator by this point. But we'll go on. Uh, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then if it's, you just got too much to take to Jerusalem, then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires. Uh, the King James Version is a little more quaint. It says, whatever your soul lusteth after. For oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. And then they give a caveat. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part or inheritance with you. He's a guy that's living in the town. He's supposed to be uh, your representative to the Lord in between you and the priestly class of the Levites. And so you take care of him. And if the whole town does, the guy would be sitting there fat, dumb, and happy for the rest of his life. I mean, obviously, a little bit from uh, every person in town, and he's going to be doing very well. Okay, plus he has his own land that he can uh, use. He's got his own rights to certain things. So that guy is going to be doing very well. But it says, here it is. This is it. This is what you tell your pastor when he says you have to tithe. At the end of every Three years. third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates and the Levite because he has no portion or inheritance with you. And the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So you actually only give away a tenth one at once every third year. Um, there are people that will take that because they know what it says and they don't want to lose out. They say that was actually a second tithe. So you have to pay 10% 
every year and the third year you have to give another 10%. And that's very deceitful and devious, but they do that. Um, and of course, the people that understand that that's wrong and they don't want to go that far with uh, lying about tithing, they will come up with what is called the law of first mention, yes. And that is where the first time something is mentioned in scripture, you are to do it after that. And why did they do that? Because Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Never mind that it's a descriptive verse, it doesn't prescribe anything. And I always tell them, okay, well, if you're going to do the law of first mention, then what you need to do is you need to make sure that if your brother dies and his wife doesn't have a child, you need to make sure that the next brother marries her and has a child for her and on and on and on and on. There's a million things that precede the law that are contained within the law of Moses that are not law first mentioned for those people. They certainly aren't, but they tell you that with tithes. So be very careful when you're dealing with people. Uh, don't argue with them, but let them know that uh, it is unscriptural for you to do that. You had something? I don't know if I can ask a question or not. Oh yeah, that's fine. Okay. Just, just make it short and make it loud because we're recording and there's people online. Great. Uh, what about Malachi chapter three? Uh, yes, who is that written to? I don't know I'm asking. He's asking. written to Israel yeah. under the law. Bring in all the tithes of your storehouse and uh, the Lord will open the windows of heaven to you. It has nothing to do with us. That's law. That's law observance. Malachi is the last. It's the 39th book of the Bible. It is a book of law, which follows from the books of Moses. Everything in New Malachi is law. And then in the New Testament, the four gospels, especially the synoptics, the first three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as synoptic gospels. They are given to show Christ's fulfillment of the law to demonstrate that he is qualified as the Messiah. He has fulfilled everything necessary that God gave Israel to then become a sacrifice in fulfillment of those things. He gave his life in exchange for them. And by doing that, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, in that it says in the book of Hebrews, which is a long complicated book and we should be there very soon. Um, <laughs> Uh, it says um, it says that um, uh, the sacrifices and offerings in, under the law were ineffective. They only anticipated Christ. They actually, you know, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, the author says. Um, uh, they were only anticipatory of his fulfillment of that. And then he goes on to say of the new covenant, he says, as I said, Hebrews 7, uh, 18, 8, 13, and 10, 9 all tell us explicitly the law is fulfilled. It is, I'll, I'll read them to you just so that you know. So in case somebody decides to demand you tithe, that you will have that in your uh, uh, arsenal to say, well, you know, uh, and what uh, Tom said a minute ago is what we will finish with on this issue. But I love to bring it up because it's something most people just are not made aware of. And uh, uh, it's uh, sad because all that is, even though it's only tithing, even though you've heard it in almost every church in the world, it is a reinsertion of the law. Any reinsertion of the law says that Christ wasn't sufficient. Finished. That's right. It's not finished. And you need to do something in order to either be saved or keep being saved, which is actually a heretical thought. If Christ's uh, atonement wasn't fully sufficient, that has to carry through for your entire life. Uh, in other words, you were saved here, great, but people say you can lose your salvation. If that was in your 39th year of being a Christian, it doesn't matter. It means that your salvation is dependent on you, not on Christ. What he did is fully sufficient to save you and to keep saving you. But uh, Hebrews 7:18, it says, uh, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment, annulling 
of the law of Moses. It is annulled through the work of Christ and the introduction of the new covenant. And then in Hebrews 8.13, he says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. So that is done. It is over. And then, of course, we go to Hebrews 10, verse 9, and he says, he takes away the first. He's talking about the law, the first. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. So those three verses tell you from the book of Hebrews that the law is annulled in Christ. Now, we could also go to, um, uh, take you to two more verses that are explicitly for the church age. Hebrews is written to the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew people, but if you go to Ephesians, and uh, we'll take you to Ephesians here, it says, um, and this is Paul writing about it, he says, uh, one more, he, Ephesians, and it says in verse um, uh, uh, 2, I'll start in 14, but 2.15, he says, for he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made both one, speaking of Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So what he's saying is that the law is abolished in him through his uh, uh, crucifixion so that the law is satisfied. He abolished that. Okay, so that is uh, a completed thing. It is something that is done. It is abolished. It is over. And uh, that's what he's speaking about right now in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. What, what is the purpose of the law when you uh, are in Christ? How does that relate to you? Uh, one more I said I'd give you, and we'll take you to Colossians. And I cited it a minute ago, but I'll read it just so you don't think I was making it up. Is, um, uh, I'll start in verse 13. It's 2.14, actually. But, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning Gentiles, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out. Now, wiped out is, I'm not going to do it because I spent all day putting this up here, but if I was to erase this with an eraser, that would be wiped out. It's gone. It's completely gone. Having wiped out the handwriting of commandments that was against us, which was contrary to us. So he's saying that the law of Moses was actually contrary to humanity. It's not that it wasn't good and holy and just. It was, and he explains that in Romans 2. But what it means is that by law, which he also explains in Romans, is the knowledge of death. And this is what I mentioned last week, and I'll repeat it just so you get a, a picture of this. I, I used to say I don't like repeating things, but then somebody emailed me and said, um, we like when you repeat them because it helps us to remember what you said the first time. But um, the very first words ever uttered to Adam were words of law. That's the first thing ever recorded in Scripture that the Lord spoke to Adam, words of law, okay? And the Old Testament ends with the words, uh, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. The law can only bring a curse. That's all it can do, okay? So he gave the law, and the law brings a curse. Paul also explains that in the New Testament as well. But uh, the New Testament comes with the birth of the Messiah right at the beginning. It's speaking of the uh, genealogy of Jesus Christ, saying, here he is. This is the one that has come. He's going to replace what Adam failed at. He did. He prevailed over the entire body of law. He died in fulfillment of that. He gave his life as a substitution for our sins. And the very last words of the Bible end with grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So we're being given these pictures, and it goes all the way through Scripture. That's just a very 
short snapshot for you, but uh, law is introduced right at the beginning to show us that we are incapable of pleasing God in any way, shape, or form. He was given one law. It was in the negative. And not only that, but he was given innumerable other trees that he could have eaten from. From any of the tree of the garden you may eat. But when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die. So he was given one commandment. It was a negative commandment. He didn't have to do anything. He just had to not do something. And he failed at it. With every possible fruit that you can imagine, it doesn't say that, but you can uh, expect that if they were in the garden and he says of any tree of the garden you can eat, well, we know that it had figs because they tried to make, you know, clothes out of figs. And uh, we can assume that there were all kinds of other wonderful, delicious fruit. Probably they had durian. That was probably right. <laughs> up there. So, uh, yeah, but the, uh, the king of all fruit, if you've yes. never had durian, please go buy some. You'll enjoy it. It's the best fruit on the planet. But um, uh, no, it's, it is so good. I, I just I just think of it and I start salivating. But um, that's just a short snapshot of what Paul is now saying in the book of Timothy. So we're in, to wrap up tithing, what are the two verses in the New Testament that talk of it? Uh, oh, yeah. In the New Testament, there are two times that tithing are mentioned. Um, uh, it's negative when Jesus says to um, uh, the Pharisees, well, you tithe you know, the mint, dill, and cumin, but you fail to do the more important aspects of the law. So they're bragging about what they're doing, okay? And the other one is in uh, the book of Hebrews where he explains what the tithing system was, okay? And how it worked in relation to Abraham and the Levites paying tithes through Abraham because they were descended from Abraham. Even though they didn't exist, ostensibly they paid tithes through their father, to Melchizedek. So he's making a point about theology there. But those are the only two times that tithing is ever mentioned in the New Testament, and they're both negative. Um, and heart. actually, the second one isn't really negative, but it's just an explanation of what's going Glad on. Heart and support your... What's that? Yeah, the, the, the only thing that is mandated in the New Testament, the only thing as far as giving, is that uh, let him who gives, give as cheerfully. he's cheerfully. So if you're giving a tithe, you're not giving cheerfully. I can guarantee you that if you're just coming into a, a new uh, home, you've got bills coming out of your ears, you've got a child that's sick in the hospital, it's costing you $6,000 a week to pay for that or whatever. I, the last thing in the world you want is for your pastor to beat tithing over you. But I've been in churches where they do exactly that. If you do that, God will bless you and you will prosper. The only person that's prospering is the person that's getting your money, okay? And so it says, <laughs> if you are to give, give cheerfully. See, if you're not giving cheerfully, don't give at all. You can do something else for the Lord. You know, go out and tell people about Jesus and hand out tracts or something. Um, and then the other thing, Paul does give a caveat, which I always say, uh, uh, I always have something that I add to it. But um, uh, he says that um, in Galatians 6, that uh, let um, share every good thing with the one who teaches you. Okay. And so I always say that if you like chocolate chip cookies, then give your teacher some chocolate chip cookies, right? Yes. Whatever. Um, if there's something that you find pleasing, then take care of your teacher, whoever he may be. Um, and, you know, that's not mandatory. Paul doesn't say that's mandatory. He's just saying that um, that's something you should do. Um, and likewise, the same thing is true with giving cheerfully. He doesn't mandate that you give. He just says, if you give, give cheerfully. Because if you're giving out of uh, grudging or necessity, as he says, then you're actually violating the precept of giving cheerfully and you're not pleasing to God. 
So if you are giving with a heart that says, I just don't want to do this this week or ever, then you are actually doing something contrary to faith. And as Paul says, uh, anything that is not of faith is sin. Absolutely. So we don't want to sin before God. Uh, not that you'll lose your salvation. It's, that's taken care of in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, where he says, we who are in Christ are not imputed sins. We can sin, but it's not being counted against us. As it says in the NIV, you, God is not counting your sins against you. Okay, so that's the freedom that we have in Christ. We are not being imputed sins, and so uh, that doesn't mean we have license, though. And we uh, need to make that distinction. It's just because you can do something does not mean you should. Okay, we do not have license to sin. We are to be holy representatives of the Lord uh, in the presence of the people of the world. But, Burke, you got something. Sin. Romans 14, 23. Romans 14, 23. Whatever is, if you need a, a verse from the Bible, he's got them all memorized. Um, so, um, yeah, let's see here. The law of Moses precedes the coming of Christ. It is Christ, as I said about Christ in Matthew, being presented in Matthew and then showing the fulfillment of the law through him. Everything necessary. And, you know, how do we know that? It's because at the end of his life, he was being judged, and people kept saying, I find no fault in him. He's done nothing wrong. He's guiltless before God. And if you want to know the absolute ultimate expression of God's approval of Christ's death, it happened the moment he died. The veil in the temple was torn. Now, this is not in the Bible, but uh, the Jewish teachings of the time uh, taught that that veil that they had for the temple in Jerusalem was a handbreadth thick. It was massive. And it was, I believe, and I could be wrong on this, it was over 20 feet tall, okay? No human could, could tear that. It was impossible. It was torn from the top down, okay? And so that is explicit in the Bible. And therefore, we know that God was pleased with him. You now have full, free, and unfettered access to me because of the death of my son. That is what that is saying. The law is done. The law is what mandated that that veil be there, okay? Certain people could go up to the temple. Certain people could go into a portion of the temple. Certain people could not go beyond that point. And the priests beyond this point, nobody but a priest could go through. And then at that veil, no person could go through except once a year and never without blood. First blood for his own sins, then he went back out and he got blood for the sins of the people and he had uh, provided atonement for them once a year on the mercy seat. That is ended. The veil was torn, and what is in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says explicitly that the veil is a picture of his flesh. His body was broken and torn at the moment that veil was torn. God was making a picture that we have full and unfettered access into the presence of God because of Christ. And without Christ, you have no access to God. Uh, people do not like to hear it, but when people say, well, you know, let's all get together and pray, their prayers are not heard if they are not Christians. I, that is what the Bible teaches, and it also shows in the typology, which is found in the book of uh, Leviticus, it says you are nobody is to make incense like this, and no other incense is ever to be presented before me except this, and it's very explicit. Every single word of the making of that incense points to Christ. We went through that in the study. It's a giant study. You can go watch the sermons. But every single 
aspect of it, every ingredient, everything about it, the the amount, the uh, amount of, you know, some have two portions, some have four portions. Everything points to what Christ did, okay? And the picture is, here's this incense placed outside of the veil. The veil is here, here's the altar of incense, and here inside is the Holy of Holies, where God is. The only thing that ever went in to the Holy of Holies throughout the year was that incense. That's the only thing that went in. It is the prayers of the people. That's uh, explained in Psalms. Let my prayers be brought to you like incense. And it's also explained in the book of Revelation. But that incense went through the veil. Nothing else out of the entire year. Okay. Our prayers are that incense. That's what that picture is. No other uh, incense is to be used before God under death. God will not accept the prayers of a person that is not in Christ. Now, he will accept one prayer from a person who is not in him. What is it? A prayer of accepting Jesus. That is it. Okay, when they accept Christ, actually, they don't need to do that. Uh, it, it says, uh, you know, for example, and this is just a descriptive passage, just not prescribing anything, but uh, the household of Cornelius believed. They didn't say anything, they didn't do anything, and the Holy Spirit came down on them. And that is what happens in the believers. Paul says that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you believe, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. From that moment on, your prayers are now acceptable to God. So the only thing that is restricting your prayers to God is your relationship with Christ. Are you hindering it or are you uh, working it out in faith with him? If you've got a prayer, you have every right in the world to go to God in prayer through Christ. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace, it says. That's the book of Hebrews. But uh, absolutely, you have 100% right to enter into the presence of God through your prayers. And uh, when you get there, I always say, we can enter boldly into the throne of grace. And when we get there, we should be on our faces. Don't claim things. I see people claiming things in church and that just bothers me to no end. There's nothing in scripture that says, I can claim in the presence of God, nothing. Okay, that is presumptuous and I would say it is sinful. You ask and if he wants to answer your prayer, he will. And if he doesn't, then you'll wait, and he may actually say no to you. But you are uh, a created being in the presence of the infinitely glorious creator. And so you need to come with a, an attitude that reflects that. And But at the same time, this chair keeps going down, driving me crazy. <laughs> at the same time, uh, uh, you have every right to go there and to ask. And so uh, a prayer that is not stated is an unstated prayer. He has no obligation to uh, read your heart. You know, he he does read your heart, but he has no obligation to. But if you state your prayers, uh, then he will hear them because of Christ. He will hear them. The incense doesn't need to go through a veil. The veil is gone. You are in the presence of God when you are in Christ. And that is, I'm speaking to somebody who is a believer in Christ. If you believe the simple gospel, then he is hearing your prayers when you pray. Bert? Oh, okay. I thought, I thought you had some. Okay, so we'll go on. Uh, law of Moses precedes the coming of Christ. It is Christ who is wholly righteous, and it is those who believe in him that are granted his perfect righteousness. Now, I, this is one of the things I write. You know, I, I've written this a million times in the commentaries of the New Testament, but it is something I never feel. I got to tell you, I don't ever feel righteous before God. I feel like the biggest sinner in the world. The things that go through my mind, you know, the, the things I do, 
the things that uh, it, it just I never feel like gee I'm a really righteous guy here okay there's never a time where I think I have done enough today there's never a time so uh, but this is the way God deems us because when he looks at you he is not seeing you if he was seeing you, he you would not be in his presence. He is seeing the shed blood of Christ that covers your sins. And because of that alone, he has accepted you. And the term that is used again and again and again in the Bible is in Christ. In Christ means in Christ. God sees you because of Christ. And because of that, he can look at you. It's a wonderful thing that God has done all by himself. He entered into the stream of humanity in the person and work of Jesus Christ, okay? So uh, it's a wonderful thing he's done, and this is the hope that we possess and the rights that we possess because of Jesus, not because of what we've done. Therefore, Paul is saying clearly and unambiguously. He says it, I've read you at least four or five verses already, but he says it clearly and unambiguously that the law of Moses is not made for those in Christ. He did the job, we do the receiving, and it is done. So, taking you back to the simple example of tithing. It is done. It is not a precept that you are obligated to in any way, shape, or form. But take that to any precept of the law of Moses. I don't care what the precept is. Um, uh, you know, and people say, well, I've got to obey the Ten Commandments. Okay, do you observe the Sabbath? Do you go to a church that observes the Sabbath? Do you turn out everything in your house on Friday night, light no fires, do nothing from Friday evening when the sun sets until Saturday evening when the sun sets? Do you do that? Because if you don't, then you are violating the Sabbath. That is the fourth commandment, okay? That's just an object lesson for you. If you're not doing that, then you have violated the entire law of Moses because if you break one command, you've broken the entire command according to James, okay? Uh, it's just letting you know that the fourth commandment is a part of, it's one of the 10 commandments. Everybody got that? Well, why is it that we don't have to do that, but we have to do all of the others, okay? The reason why is because the other nine are mentioned again in the New Testament, okay? Paul says, don't murder. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, honor your father and your mother. Now, you are not being imputed sin if you don't. And thank goodness for that because I get in a fight with my mom about every six months or five months and we get, you know, angry at each other and my dad more often, maybe once every 20 hours. But, um, uh, you know, uh, so I'm not really honoring them when I'm angry at them, okay? But I love them anyway, despite their faults. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, they are the most patient parents in the world. I can tell you that because... Uh, there's Charlie and two brothers. That, yeah, I'm still alive. Uh, okay, so I didn't say this yet. Um, uh, a couple people saw this, and you showed up late from what I told you. Uh, I met my granddaughter today, finally. After three months of life, she'll be uh, three months old on Sunday, but I met her today, and it was very nice to hold her in my arms. Good stuff. So, Did you it, go up there? No. She's here. No, she's here. She arrived this morning at about 12, and I got to hold my little... I sent everybody a copy of the photo, and every single one of those messages rejected. Every one of them. So I'm like, I've never had that happen ever with my Apple messages. 
they always go out. They all came back. And maybe it's because when I took it, it was on, you know, like it, it, it takes three photos at once. Oh, okay. Yes. That's, and so that's maybe, okay, I don't, they all rejected. And I don't know how to use that thing. I mean, this is for church. That That's what this is for. I don't own a cell phone. I will never own a cell phone. When they mandate it to eat, I won't eat because I'm not owning a cell phone. Your daughter but, sent out enough pictures. You oh, yeah. Just copy well, I just had a picture of me holding her. I've, well, I've never had a picture of me holding her, so now I have one. She but, was here. She, and she'll be back. Don't worry. Before the end of the class, she'll be here. Um, so um, going on, let's see here. The um, uh, law of Moses is not made for those in Christ. And then this is simple, straightforward, and obvious on the surface if you read your Bible. Now, if you don't read your Bible, you might not know the things that I've told you. And so I would then implore you to read your Bible. You, you know, I, I put this in commentaries quite often, is that if you go to a church and a preacher or a teacher or a pastor tells you something and you don't know the Bible, you have no reason at all to argue against him. He may tell you to go jump off the bridge and you have no reason to not go jump off the bridge, okay? Unless you know the Bible personally, you don't know if what you're being told is true or not. But if you've read it a couple times, you will at least say, I don't think that sounds right. And you'll start looking through the Bible and you'll find where he's wrong and you'll say, I knew it. But if you don't have that simple basis for your walk with the Lord, you are the one that is harming yourself, okay? I, uh, uh, people always ask me, you know, what, what do I need if I want to go to seminary? And uh, what do you recommend? And I tell them, I tell them every single time, you read the Bible 50 times from front to back before you go to seminary because you're not going to get much Bible training in a seminary. When I went to uh, SES, they had two courses on the Bible that I took, actually three. We had a uh, uh, Old Testament survey and a New Testament, I'm sorry, four. Old Testament survey and New Testament survey, which wasn't really anything. It's just, you know, giving a theme and, you know, just not anything. And then they ask you to do uh, in Old Testament, uh, the guy that I had for Old Testament survey, he said, I'd like you to do a study on one book of the Old Testament. Okay, and you can pick it and then I'll prove it whether I accept that or not. Okay, so, and then the only book, I'm sorry, there's one other, it came to mind. Ah, look that at this. I, I got two books, Daniel and Acts. And they both did a pretty good job on, on their teaching of those books. But that's all the instruction I got in the entire time that I was in the seminary. Everything else was just, you know, stuff. It was theology. And I got to tell you, if you don't know the Bible, you don't know if what they're teaching you in theology proper is correct or not. So if you want to go to seminary or if you want to, you know, simply take courses online, which you can do, you can audit courses for free at many colleges. Uh, you know, you want to take the Hebrew and learn how to read or speak Hebrew and Greek. You can do that right for free online. Just audit the course. You won't get any credit for it, but you can do it. Um, uh, but if you don't know scripture before you go, you are totally at the mercy of those people. And if they are not soundly trained, and I got to tell you, a lot of them, I would say most of them are not, you're going to get bad theology. Okay, that's why we have so many Arminists and why we have so many Calvinists and why we have so many of this and so many of that is because people don't know the Bible. All they know is what they were taught and somebody makes something up and you have no basis for not knowing. So uh, read the Bible and then uh, I love to tell people this. Uh, you can get a audio Bible and you can listen to it in your car. 
this year, not this year because this year is over, uh, last year is over, but already in this year, I've gone through the entire New Testament. And uh, more than that, I've, I've gone through part of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament just since, and I only drive a mile and a half a day. That's it. And then I come out here once a week and I go to the projects once a week. I'm sorry, I come here twice a week, Sunday too. But I, I drive a mile and a half to the mall and I go back home, do that for an hour every day. That's all the driving I do. And I'm done with, you know, a lot of the Bible. Last year, I probably went through it five times in just a few minutes of driving every day. So please do it. And if you read your Bible, here's conviction time. If you read your Bible 30 minutes a day, out loud, which you always read slower when you read out loud, but if you read your Bible 30 minutes a day out loud, you will have read it the entire Bible in 154 days, okay? That's how long an audio Bible is if you have an audio Bible, so 154 days. You should be able to read your Bible at least twice a year, at least twice a year if you just pick it up and read it, okay? I found a Bible in the dumpster uh, last uh, just before it went out uh, a couple days ago. I, I, the mall I take care of, I always go dumpster diving. I find all kinds of good stuff. I found a Bible. It's in the car right now. If you want to go get it out of the car, I can show these so they don't think I'm lying. But it's this nice Bible. It's from the early 1900s. I'm sorry. Yeah, like 1920 is the first date in there. And it has um, a guy, his name in the front. And then in the back, they have the thing that they used to put there, uh, the date I was married, the date my child was born, grandchild. It's got all these listed. And that Bible has not been read once. I can tell you, you go look at it. You can tell the pages were never turned. All that was was something that I'm going to carry into church once a week. I'm going to set it down. I'm going to bring it back home. I'm going to write the dates of people living and dying. And I thought, what a heartbreak for me. What an absolute heartbreak that that Bible has been left unread all these years. There's no way anybody, you know, you know a Bible when it's been read at least one time. Okay, um, the one that I used to preach with, Tom got so upset at me, he finally handed me a new one because we'd be at the beach and pages would fly out whenever, whenever the wind was blowing. We don't have that problem in the church anymore because we're indoors, but yeah, I had literally pages flying down the beach and somebody's running after them for me. Uh, you know, wear the Bible out and then go buy another Bible and have two Bibles, one to read in the morning and one to read at night. So you're reading different versions. Okay, you are responsible for your life in Christ. Okay, if I'm teaching you wrong right now, you need to know that I'm teaching you wrong right now or you're just gonna believe everything Charlie says and that's not a happy place to be. So, um, okay, the believer in Christ stands justified before God because of Christ's fulfillment of the law on our behalf. That's it, justified. Paul says that in Romans. He says, I won't take you there, we'll be there all day. Uh, he says that we, those who are in Christ are uh, justified, justified glorified. and glorified. And it's in the past tense. It's done. Okay. Those whom he foreknew, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he uh, justified, he glorified. In God's mind, you are already glorified in Christ. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, speaking of right now, you are sitting in the heavenly realms in Christ. You are sitting in the heavenly realms in Christ, in God's mind. Okay. What are you doing about that here on earth right now? Okay, that's what God is trying to tell you. This is a reality that exists in my presence and you are living out your life in some way before me. What is that way? Because he says in uh, two, uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5 that a day of judgment is coming. Not for condemnation, it's for salvation, but it is for reward and loss in your salvation. So 
Only you can decide. And I will say this because, you know, my friend, uh, he's in Scotland and he's he can't do very much anymore. Uh, he's got a body that's worn out. And when I said this in a study a month or two ago, he said, you know, I'm kind of concerned. He says, I really can't do anything. And I said, you don't need to do anything great. You don't need to do anything great. I, we've already answered the thing is that if it is not of faith, that is sin. But if it's of faith, you're pleasing to God. So all you need to do is just do things that are of faith. Like when I'm at the mall, now nowadays it's not as bad because uh, you know people are always talking to themselves in these these things, you know. And, but um, well, I don't have those things, and I'm always talking to myself. I'm talking to the Lord, taking out the garbage, and you know you can't talk to the Lord unless you have faith that the Lord is there listening. Yeah. Unless you're crazy. Okay, and so uh, everything you do that is in faith will get a reward. You know, if you do something, it doesn't matter how small it is. You don't need to go out and be a preacher. You don't need to go be a missionary over in Papua New Guinea, although he appreciates that because people in Papua New Guinea need to hear the gospel. But you don't need to do those things to do something great in Christ. Uh, the example I love to give is the lady that was a bedridden. And on her walls... She attended the church for years, and every time they had somebody that came to the church or a new missionary, they would bring a picture of that person to her. And she had pictures all around her walls, and she sat there and laid in bed all day and prayed for these people. She's doing something in faith that she is able to do something for God, okay? No matter how small it is, you don't need to do big and great things as long as you are doing them in faith. And the absolute truth is that if you are doing little things for God in faith and a pastor or a professor is doing it because he's getting rich or because he's whatever, he's not doing it in faith, you are getting a lot more rewards than that guy ever will, if he's even saved at all, okay? All God wants is you. He wants you and a relationship with you. And when you do things in faith, he will be pleased with that. Okay, the believer in Christ stands justified before God because of Christ's fulfillment of the law on our behalf. Where the law could justify none, how do we know that the law could not justify a single person? How do we know atonement that? Atonement every year. They had the Day of Atonement every single year. That's a reminder of the sins of the people. But more than that, they had the Day of Atonement. More than that. They're all dead. Right. Not a single person from the time of Moses all the way to the time of Jesus, not one person under the law is alive. And it says explicitly, the man who does the things of the law will live. And that wasn't saying, you know, I love to read these commentaries of people that say, oh, well, that means you'll have a happy and prosperous life. You know, tell that to the bedridden person in, you know, Samaria. Okay, that's not what that's speaking of. It says the man who does the things of the law will live. He will live, okay? You will not die. To live is to not die. And every single person ever born under the law of Moses is in a grave right now. Except one. Except one. He died and he came back to life because he was perfect in the eyes of God. Everybody else is dead. If you don't believe that... Read Acts chapter 2, where the great King David, a man after my own heart, 400 years after he was dead, he said, I will protect Jerusalem for the sake of my servant David. Okay? What does it say in Acts 2 or 3? His grave is right here. Look, he wasn't writing about himself. He was writing about the coming Messiah. Okay? When he's talking about your holy one shall not see corruption, and people say, well, David was speaking about himself. 
It wasn't. There he is, still laying there. Okay, Christ, uh, in him we stand justified. The law rather highlighted man's sin. That's all it can do. Okay, if you don't have a speed limit in Sarasota, and I know I kind of treat Sarasota like that, but if you don't have a speed limit in Sarasota, okay, there's no posted speed limit. Can they write you a ticket for speeding? No. No. But as soon as they write a law that says the speed limit is 45 or on this street 30 or on this street 20, all these different laws, every single one of those laws now brings about the knowledge of sin. You can either accept it and go 25 or you can ignore it and go 28 and get a ticket, right? That is what law does. Law by law is the knowledge of sin. Law condemns because none of us ever fully meet the demands of the law, okay? I did a sermon last year, maybe three, four, five months ago, and uh, I said that every single person in this church right now, and every person you see, all when you go out, look at any one of them, every one of them woke up this morning guilty before the law of the United States of America. Every one of you. Because they have laws that contradict and you will never be free from guilt. If they want to prosecute you in this country, they can because of the number of laws that exist in the federal government. Add in the state laws, add in the local laws, and pretty soon all you have is this massive burden resting on your shoulders. Now imagine the law that not only can send you to jail for a while or fine you, but a law that will condemn you forever. That's what Adam's law did. The day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And what did they do? They ate of the fruit and they died. Now, they didn't die physically on that day. They died 930 years old, Adam. Now, how do we know that God isn't a liar? Because he wasn't talking about physical death. Physical death is a result of spiritual death. They died spiritually the moment that they ate of that fruit. And the proof of that was making fig leaves to hide themselves. They were spiritually naked before God. They covered themselves insufficiently. And because of that, they uh, uh, were cast out of Eden. And they spent the rest of their life in that state. And every human since then has inherited what Adam did. So that law condemns us. The law of Moses was just given to show us how bad law is in the presence of, for you in the presence of God. Not the law is bad, but you in the presence of God and why we need Jesus. That's why it says in the book of Galatians that the law is our tutor to lead us to Christ. You say, I've got this burden on me. I've got this sentence of death hanging over me. Who is going to free me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus our Lord. Good stuff from, uh, from God to you. The law highlighted man's sins. It was intended to lead the person aware of their sin to their need, here it is, for God's grace and mercy. And these are found in Christ Jesus. As Paul says, here it is, like, sorry, I got ahead of myself. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. I should read these before I do the class because <laughs> I typed this like eight years ago. And so I, if I read them, I wouldn't double myself up. But anyway, um, he then immediately, Paul in Galatians, immediately follows that up with, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So there's, there's an answer to the question right there. This is the law. This is Genesis through Malachi. All right, 39 books of the Old Testament. And it's, here we go. Hang on, we're, gonna get, we're getting there really quickly. Malachi's a teeny little book. There it is. Okay, this is 
the time of the law. I mean, some of it is outside of the law, but this is what we call the law because the Pentateuch is the basis of the law. And then everything after that is God continuing to reveal himself in the law for the people of Israel. Okay. And so it says right there, after faith has come, Paul's words, we are no longer under a tutor. This was a tutor to lead us to Christ. And so even though Adam and Eve didn't have that law, they had a law, it is recorded in the law. It's a part of the law of Moses. That, what happened right there was a lesson to tell us we need Jesus. And immediately, immediately after they violated the law, the Lord told them that a Jesus was coming. He said in Genesis 3.15, he didn't say the name, but it says right there, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He promised one that would take care of the one that got us fouled up in the first place. He promised this redeemer was coming and they clung to that knowing that this person was gonna come. All the way through the Bible, hints of him are given. Even in the New Testament, I mean, when Jesus was standing at the grave of Lazarus, what did uh, Mary say? She said, Lord, I know that Lazarus will rise on the last day. She knew that he was, would, okay? Um, the lady at the well, she's a Samaritan. She's not even of, you know, the Jewish people. She's a Samaritan. And she knew Messiah was coming. And he said, woman, I am he, okay? Everybody knew that this was the case because of what it was promised from the very, very beginning, okay? It was a tutor to lead us to Christ. But when faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. This is the tutor. We're not under that anymore. We need to know this because when we know this, then we can understand this. And that's why we've been in, started in Genesis uh, 11 years ago now, and we're just getting into Judges. Gideon, Judge of Israel, part four. That'll be uh, uh, Judges 7. That'll be this Sunday, okay? And that's the one where he gets down on his knees or he tells them whoever gets down on his knees and laps, put them on one side and whoever does this, put them on the other side and that'll all be explained. Okay, that's coming this week and actually it won't be explained this week. This is just, it'll set up, it'll set up for next week, but uh, last week and this week are set up for next week. So you understand the context of it. But you wouldn't understand what Paul is talking about unless you knew what the Old Testament was saying. And you will never know what the book of Hebrews is saying unless you know the book of Leviticus, okay? I mean, you can know what it means. You just don't have the, the depth of knowledge of why he is saying the things he's saying unless you know Leviticus. And I can tell you that that is the most exciting book. It is the most exciting book that you will read and you will study. It is absolutely, um, I've said this to the class several times, but for the people that aren't here, uh, I told you that when I was in seminary, you had to do a study on one Old Testament book. And, you know, uh, most people will pick something big like Jonah or maybe Obadiah, it's one chapter. And uh, when I told him that I wanted to do a study on the book of Leviticus, he thought I was kidding. And I said, no, I'm absolutely serious. This is the most incredible book. It is the most Christological book that you will find in the Old Testament. And I'm going to tell you what, Jonah is so filled with Jesus that it's incredible. Ruth is so filled with Jesus that it's incredible. But you... You just cannot believe the detail that's found in the book of Leviticus that points to the coming Redeemer. Every single word. It seems so tedious and so difficult to read until you do a study on it and you say, I just can't believe what's in this word. It is so beautiful. So, um, uh, but that is needed to really understand Hebrews. And Hebrews isn't a big book. It's only 13 chapters. So maybe what we could do is stop Timothy 
and finish up <laughs> Hebrews this evening, okay? We just about are there. We, we might be able to. I, I love Hebrews. It's a great, great book. And a uh, uh, lot of misconceptions about what is being said there. People that want to justify you can lose your salvation. They go to Hebrews. And those verses don't justify that at all. They're, they're completely taken out of the context. Uh, trust me on that. But if you want the commentaries online at the uh, website. Um, the law is not intended for those who are in Christ. Uh, with this understanding... He next says who the law is intended for. It does. It is not for the righteous, as Paul said earlier, but for his words, the lawless. The intent here is a person who simply does not recognize any law. Rather than not having a law, it is one who refuses to recognize the law as an authority. You don't believe that? Just go up to Chicago right now, okay? Or any other big city in this country, and you will see exactly who Paul is writing about, okay? They and the people there don't enforce the laws, and so they only have greater problems, okay? You got a law, people violate the law, you put them in prison. You don't uphold the law, and the next thing you know, the people are only going to commit more and more infractions against the other people that are upholding the law, okay? So, this is what Paul is writing about. The intent here is a person who does not recognize any law. He refuses to recognize the laws and authority. These are anarchists. Think of Antifa. I mean, th that's exactly what they claimed they were. Total anarchy in Seattle, and that didn't go over very well. These are anarchists who refuse to acknowledge that they are bound to the laws put in place. Okay? Next he says, and insubordinate. This is tied in with the lawless. It is those who may recognize a law, but they are disobedient to it. Bonnie and Clyde, they certainly recognized the law as an authority. In arming themselves in order to fight, they knew that the law was valid, but they simply snubbed their noses at it. So anybody that says, I'm going to go out and do something, but I'm going to take these precautions so that I can get away, they know that they're violating the law, okay? The anarchists don't care about the law. They're just going to go out and they're going to violate, and they, they have no sense of there even being a law and they know they can get away with it. Bonnie and Clyde weren't like that. They knew that they could get caught, and they knew that they could get killed, and so they armed themselves very heavily. They made a persona about themselves, and they went out, and they uh, you know, got friendly with all the people of America, so people actually hid them, helped them along the way. They were like movie stars, all right? But eventually, their day came, but they were the insubordinate. They knew there was a law. They just didn't care about the law, okay? Paul then says, for the ungodly. The ungodly are those who refuse to give God the reverence and respect he is due. Now, that has become just standard in the world today. The people that are godly are the ones that are treated as criminals. I mean, that's happened. Uh, I talked to a guy this morning. I was mowing the lawn, and a big guy, he came walking over, and I, he looked like somebody I knew. So he said, hey, how are you? And I said, hey, good to see you. And he walked up and uh so I turned off the lawnmower, and uh, I, I thought it was people come and visit every year, and so I kind of get mixed up who I know and who I don't because, you know, you see one guy, you recognize him. But if you go into a store all the time, you know who you're dealing with, but they see 50 people a day, so it gets a little com hard for them unless they see you again and again and again. But I'm out there mowing, and uh, he walks up, and he said, I just want to let you know, I'm so thankful that you're mowing the grass today. He said, I've been up in Canada now all winter, and I haven't smelled fresh grass in months. And I said, I said, the funny thing is, I mowed this lawn twice. 
this summer. We had no rain at all. We had no rain because it was a El Nino pushing that way. We had no rain on the island at all. Inland, we had a little bit of rain, but in the island, we got no rain at all. And so it was very dry. I didn't have to mow the lawn, which didn't bother me. But the uh, uh, I said to him, it's funny that here it's one of the colder days in the very middle of winter, and I'm out mowing the lawn because we got rain and the grass is growing. But anyway, I'm talking to him, and he gave me his name. I gave him my name. We talked for a minute, and then I shook his hand, and he said, God bless you. And I said, you're a Christian. He said, yes. And I we started talking about the state of things in Canada, right? Things are changing. He lives in Toronto nonetheless. So, wow. Anyway, um, so, you know, I told him what I do. And, you know, I said, if you want to see the sunrise, you can watch the webcam in the back of my house. And it rises over the bay. And, and uh, so I said, please, you know, say hi if you go there. And uh, hopefully I'll see him again. But it was so nice to meet a Christian from Toronto because there is very, very little of that left up there. Um, I will probably, I think it's this weekend or maybe I'm saving it for next weekend is talk about euthanasia in Canada. Um, uh, just in the past five days, I've seen so much about it. And this started in 2015. The law was enacted in 2016. And it was the most extreme circumstances only, just like abortion, only in the most extreme circumstances. And now they demand to abort every child that is coming into existence in this nation. Well, that's the way it is with uh, euthanasia in Canada now. They're killing more people than any other country on the planet. It's like a death factory up there. They're paying people to die. It's just unbelievable. So this is the ungodly. Those who refuse to give God the reverence and respect that he is due. In them, there is no fear of God. Supposed atheists like Richard Dawkins fit this description. This is coupled with and for sinners. These are Paul's words. Sinners are those who defy God's law, violating it willfully and flagrantly. Okay? This is what the U.S. government is doing right now. They're taking God's law, which, you know, Obama was really the first one to do it, but he said, you know, this isn't a Christian nation. Well, he doesn't know his jurisprudence because in uh, the Trinity decision of 1893, I think it is, uh, and that's still on the books today, folks. Supreme Court of the United States did the biggest study in the history of the Supreme Court of the United States. And in the Trinity decision, their conclusion was, this is a Christian nation. They went through everything and they said, the mass, uh, how did they say it? The mass of something utterances, mass organic utterances of the establishment and uh, continuance of this nation tells us that this is a Christian nation. Now, until that's changed, this is a Christian nation. And so we've got a real problem here because we're not living in accord with what we are. Okay, now if they want to change that and they want to have that law changed, they have a right to do that. Okay, but as it stands right now, we are sinners in the presence of a holy God. Okay, and so we're the ones that are going to have to uh, uh, face that. It, we're the ones that are going to have to suffer through that, and we're doing it right now. I mean, uh, we're, judgment was given to us on a platter a couple of years ago, and this is just the way it is. This is just what we have to live with and what we have to accept, all right? If you disagree with me, that's fine, but that's written right there in, in the Trinity decision. So uh, there you go. Um, uh, and if you want, just look it up online. You can read the whole decision right there. Everything is right there online. Um, 
uh, let's see here, um, where were we? Uh, ungodly, okay, atheists. Um, next he notes the unholy. The word describes someone who ignores his duty to God, disregarding it as unnecessary to their life, okay? That is the unholy. Let me make a note here really quickly. Um, got that. Uh, they disregard uh, their duty to God as it is unnecessary to their life. Thank you. They will profane the name of the Lord without compunction and simply give up right living for a life of sin and wickedness. Well, that sounds like a lot of the country right now, or the whole world. I mean, uh, you know, I always say, people say how you know bad it is and they can't believe the Lord hasn't come. And it says that the entire world was uh, wicked before God's sight in Genesis 6. All right. And we're not there yet. I mean, things can get a lot, lot, lot worse. I hope that we're out of here before that happens, but um, you know, I'm not one to go speculating on when the Lord's going to come for us. But uh, it can get a lot worse before, and we're looking at everything from an American paradigm where we had it really good and things are going downhill, and so we equate everything with what it once was. And you can't do that. You know, that's like you know, the grass is always greener attitude. So, uh, but this is what's going on right here. Uh, simply give up right living for a life of sin and wickedness. Uh, I uh, love to tell the story of when I was in um, uh, Malaysia, and we came back from Malaysia in 1993, and we got TV, and had cable TV, Comcast, and that was the only game in town was Comcast TV. You didn't have any other options. And they uh, raised the rates each year, and that's fine because you're a company and they have bills to pay. And then one year they raised it $5 in a single year. And the reason wasn't because they wanted a rate increase. It was because the Sarasota County commissioners wanted to have their own channel. They wanted themselves on TV for people to watch them. And that was a tax that wasn't a tax. And so I called up Comcast and I said, I am canceling. And she said, why are you canceling? And I said, because of what you did with the Sarasota County channel. And she said, I just have to tell you, I've had more cancellations today than I've ever, ever had in any increase in all the years I've worked here. And I said, there's a difference between them and me. And she said, what do you mean? I said, they'll be back. I won't. And we didn't have TV in that house for a long, long time. And so when I, now the kids were about this big when we got back from Malaysia. My daughter is now in college up in Chattanooga and she did something to upset dad. And so I got in the car that morning. I told my boss I'm leaving and I drove to Chattanooga. And I pull up and she's getting ready to walk into the the uh, uh, lunchroom all cocky and she looked over and saw me and she got scared wow so I went in I talked to her for 45 minutes and I got in my car and I drove back home and it's about a ten and a half hour drive to get there and by the time I got to Georgia I was tired and so I said well, I better get a hotel I don't want to have an accident so I got a hotel and I went in and I turned on the TV and in the years from not having TV to seeing TV, I could not believe the depravity. And nobody else saw it. They didn't know what had happened because they just watched TV every day and they just, they, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I came back and I told her this. I could not believe it. And that is nothing compared to what we have now. Sure. Nothing. But people could not see it because they were the frog in the kettle being stewed. All right. But this is, this is what's happening in the world. And the more it happens, the more it will happen. So the word used to describe such is only found here and in 2 Timothy 3, verse 
two. This is the unholy. These degenerates are coupled with the profane. Okay, that's this next category. The profane speak of secret things in a, or I'm sorry, sacred things in a lewd manner. They take something that is sacred and they speak of it as unholy. Like, you know, the artists up in New York that like to do things with the crucifix that are vulgar and disgusting and they put it on a, a wall or in a display and they say, this is art, okay? Now, I, I'm not into crucifixes, that's not my thing. And we, all you need is the cross there, but um, it doesn't matter. It's, and I will say this because uh, some people just get offended when they see a crucifix. That's so Catholic, well, you know, I don't care. That over there is a picture of Jesus. Okay, he's got a cross on his head, or a, a crown of thorns on his head in one, and he looks like the shepherd in another. Okay, that's a depiction that makes me think of Jesus. I don't think Jesus looks like that. It just reminds me what he did. But that uh, uh, crown on his head was a moment in time. Okay, Jesus was on the cross in a moment in time. So I have no problem seeing depictions of Jesus on the cross or crucifixes. It's just reminding me of what happened. Okay, but the Baptist thinking is he came off the cross. And so we just want to see the cross. And Paul does say, let me boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Okay, but I have no problem with people that have a crucifix, zero, or pictures of Jesus on the cross or whatever. I, I, I just don't have a problem with that because my focus is not on the thing. My focus is on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2. Um, so um, the... Uh, these degenerates are coupled with profane. They speak of sacred things in a lewd manner. Their actions may carry the same intent. The singer Madonna is an example of one who is both profane in her speech and in her actions. And just think of the past two years. I mean, if this was, if this was six, seven years ago I typed this, it's changed a lot even since then, okay? Paul's next category is murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. These are those who openly violate the fifth commandment. The word used signifies to hit or beat one's parents, not specifically those who murder them. However, a beating can lead to death. And so the stronger sense is translated into the English, all right, even if incorrectly. They put it in there because this can lead to this, but it's a person that would violently beat his parents. And you see this a lot mail online yesterday and then they had to add it in again today showed a guy that chopped off his dad's head and you know held it up on youtube and everybody was watching this video for like hours before they took it down but you know he's just a it, but he's crazy okay there's a difference and i know they're trying to align him with the you know the right wing but he was just crazy he wrote a book called the second messiah and he thinks he's the second messiah and yeah he's a nut job but it, the point is that he is it's somebody that was brutal to his parents and you'll see this all the time if you you know look through the news people beating up their parents or you hear these people man it's so i heard about a guy when i was a kid and i thought how could that be is he his parents gave him the house so that it would be out of their estate and he kicked them out of their house and i thought wow. you know what are you doing they raised you. They gave you this house. They're doing something loving for you. And the selfish little, you know, no, 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 he goes and kicks them out. Now they have nothing. That's, you know, that's just insane. But, and that was, I was just a little kid when that happened. People are doing that kind of stuff and it's considered happy time now. I, I don't know. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, beating can lead to a death. Yes. Uh, the possibility of murder by such is not far off. If you're going to beat your parents, it's not far off.
that you're going to be killing somebody next, okay? Um, the thing that I really can't stand, I see it almost every day. I, you know, I have to read these news articles for the report every week, okay? And there are things, there are two things that happen every day. I saw two of them on the first one, which is teachers sleeping with their children. Two of those just today. I see it every single day, okay? The other one is uh, father is in an uh, argu argument with his wife. He kills his wife, kills his children, and then kills himself. I mean, what did they have to do with this? But this is what Paul is writing about. As difficult as it is to talk about these things, this is what he's warning us against in his word. Okay? And finally, he completes the list of those for whom the law is intended with manslayers. This includes those who kill others either with malice or with a passion for killing. Think of Jeff Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, you know what? The funny thing is that God's mercy is so great that Dahmer became a Christian, and I guarantee you that the Lord saved him, all right? Despite all the people he killed, and he was a cannibal and ate him, despite that, the Lord, if he was truthful in his conversion to Christ, the Lord has saved him, okay? Mm -hmm. There is no sin that is beyond the grace of God in Christ, none, okay? Uh, this includes those who kills others, who kill others. In other words, it is inclusive of both the violent and the psycho killer. It covers everybody, okay? Paul will continue with his list of people for whom the law was made in the next verse, which we won't get to today no. because we only got nine minutes left. But in all of them, it is intended for the most vile and disobedient offenders. For those who suppose that they are made holy by the law, they claim they apply the law in that fashion. But that is completely contrary to whom Paul says the law is intended for. Instead of applying it to the holiest, it is meant to convict those least holy. That is the intent of the law. It's not, I'm going to observe this law and become good before God. It's, you are bad and you need to observe this to not be bad. If you don't believe that, read the book of Proverbs, okay? It says, what happens to the, and Job too, what happens to the land when the judge's eyes are blind, when they just let offenses go and all those things. It, that is the application of those things. But uh, the, uh, uh, the law is uh, intended for those who are violators of the law, okay? It's not for people that are righteous. And because we're in Christ, we are righteous. And therefore, what we should do is learn. I love to show people the contrast. We just saw how big and uh, heavy the burden of the law is. And then you go to the words. We're going to go with Paul because Paul is the apostle to church. the church, the Gentiles, okay? The Gentile-led church age. Okay, now, this is something that, if you think about that Bible that I found, and I guarantee it's never been read, read. it was just taken down, and it was written in whenever something big happened, but it was never read, okay? If you think about the, the crime of that, here's Paul's letters right here. Everything that you need to know for your conduct during the church age is right here. That's not everything you need to know, but for what you need to know for doing the responsibility in the church, that's it. People have studied these pages right here for 2,000 years, and they still debate and argue over it. Mm -hmm. And yet we watch too much TV, and we watch football, and we uh, have time for everything except this. You can read this entire body of Paul's writings in about an hour. If you listen to it while you're driving, I heard all of Paul's writings in the past day or two. All right, everything. 
That's it. And yet we won't read it and we won't take it to heart. Okay. And I got to tell you something. This is something that will shock you if you haven't watched any of the Old Testament sermons. Every single time we get into typology, where does the typology that we are looking at point to? Paul's letters. Something that Paul has said. It's not 100%. I mean, there are references to the cross. There are references to Jesus' work. There's all kinds of stuff like that. But the theology that is presented in the Old Testament typology is basically found in Paul's letters. And Paul did write the epistle to the Hebrews. I know it's not dated and it's almost blasphemous to say Paul wrote it, but you can know, all right? There are several ways you can know. Um, if you want to know how, just go and uh, 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 read the uh, commentary that it, I did on the book of Hebrews, the opening commentary. But you can add this in, all right? There, add that into Paul's writings. 100% you can know it was Paul that wrote it. But um, I, I give all the information there, but uh, add that in and that's it. That's, that's what you need to know. And the Hebrews is not written to the Gentile church. It's written to the Hebrew people. And actually, the Hebrew people after the church. Uh, the structure of the Bible itself is laid out so that we can see the dispensations of time. The way that it is structured is based on the prophecy of Noah to his three sons after the flood. And there, there in Genesis chapter 9, he does a blessing upon his sons. Okay, it's a prophecy of the future to come. The Bible is based, the structure of the Bible is based on that. And so uh, we can do that on the board one of these days, but I won't today. That shouldn't uh, be very shocking, though, because he being a Pharisee, it's like, you know, he had all that. Uh, he had all of the knowledge. Like, That's you know, right, so Paul. Just like it perfectly went over. Yeah, he had writings. the knowledge, he had the experience, and he also had the calling. He was the most vehement against the church and the calling is what changed him. So he yeah. said, I labor more than them all, okay? He did everything for the sake of Christ because he understood his guilt before God, despite all of his knowledge of the law. It, to him, he called it skibala, dung, okay? Uh, for those who teach that, the, that Christians are still bound to the law, they are actually placing themselves into this list of people. Instead of drawing nearer to God through the law, they are placing themselves at further enmity with God through it. How stupid. I know I shouldn't call people stupid, but it does call people stupid in the book of Proverbs, okay? <laughs> so, um, and uh, the word that Paul uses for foolish is the word moros, moron, okay? So he's calling people morons, all right? So um, there is precedent for calling people what they are, but I, you know, anyway, life application. The Bible is absolutely clear concerning the law of Moses. We got one minute to finish too, actually. It was intended for keeping lawbreakers in check and it was intended to highlight them and remove them from society. That was the purpose of it. It was never intended as a means of attaining holiness before God. If you don't believe that, read the Psalms of David. He will let you know exactly that the law didn't do that, that he needed God's mercy. Have mercy on me, O oh God. He says it again and again in various ways, especially after his sin with uh, Bathsheba and it's presented to him. And it was, I, I'll tell you this before I finish this. Uh, I don't like his presentation because of certain things that he adds into it. But the idea behind his presentation is correct is, um, uh, what's his name from Australia, little guy, Ray Comfort, okay? He calls it the way of the master. And the way of the master is, if they think that they are good before God, give them the law. If they understand they're a sinner, give them grace. Mm -hmm. 
Now, unfortunately, he does not teach what the way of the master is. He, he adds things in. I won't get into it right now. Uh, he does a fine job, but he adds in things he should not when he's giving the gospel presentation, and he completely obliterates the grace of Christ. But if somebody thinks they're holy, just give them the law. Have you ever told a lie? Yes, well, then you're condemned. That's all you need to do, and people get that. But if they know that they're condemned, there are people who say, I, I know I'm going to hell. You don't need to tell them the law. You just give them the grace of God. That's all you need to do. Okay, that's what Jesus did. That's what David implies in his writings. Okay, it was never intended as a means of attaining holiness before God. You Judaizers and Hebrew Roots Movement followers have actually set yourself in opposition to God by ignoring the righteousness of Christ. If you are unwilling to live in the new covenant, you will die by the old. Best wishes in your endeavors, but better come to Christ and be freed from this sad end. Okay, that, that is what God offers us, grace. He doesn't offer us law. He offered Jesus to take care of the law. And this is what Paul is so adamant about because he was number one big law guy. That's all he could think of was pleasing God because of his own righteousness. And when he was encountered, the it, look at all of them. What, what did Peter do when he saw Christ's miracle? You know, throw your net over on this side of the boat. And he saw the glory of God and he said, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinner. Paul sat there for three days blinded, probably thinking, I am so unworthy of coming into the presence of God. Heavenly Father, we are very grateful to you for Jesus. Thank you for the marvel of what he has done, the glory of God in Christ, doing what we could never do for ourselves, fulfilling it and finishing it so that we can have freedom in your presence once again. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, don't get up. We've got to say goodbye to the folks online, so I'll back it up and uh, wave to the folks. Uh, break, 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 break. Okay, hang on.